0: Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneur Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg
1: In this chapter, he's dealing with, with apathy. How does a person deal with apathy? Well, that's the most difficult thing to deal with. When you're indifferent. When you stop caring. You know, as long as a person struggles or a person cares, then you can, just, just, you can deal with it. But when a person's heart, you just stop caring. Apathetic. And that's the most difficult thing. That's the greatest challenge. You know, in a, in a relationship... As long as, as long as the couple is upset with each other, angry with each other, upset with each other, hate each other, then there's hope. There's something alive. There's still feelings. But when they re- reach a point of apathy and indifference and they stop caring, it's very, very, very difficult. So too, in our relationship with, with God, in our relationship with Hashem, it's inevitable. There are moments when you just feel apathetic, not angry, not upset, not hostile. Your heart is just closed, shut down. You just don't care. Indifference, one way or the other. So how do you get through apathy? How do you get through indifference? How do you spark the interest again? How do you spark the, the life? How do you bring the heart back to life? And with apathy, there's nothing you can do. And everything shuts down. And you have nothing to work with. You know, when a person is angry, it's one thing. You're upset, you're angry. You can deal with it. It means there's a live relationship. But when the heart shuts down and you become apathetic and indifferent, how do you spark that interest again? How do you... And that's what he's explaining in Chapter 29. He's spending a lot of time. It's a very long chapter because... It's a very difficult, very difficult thing to, to tackle and to deal with. And he says that in order to deal with it, you have to get to the root cause of this apathy, of the shutting down of the heart. What's the root cause? He says the root cause is, in one word, he says it's arrogance. When the heart is clogged because of the arrogance, of the shell, the arrogance that covers the heart and simply doesn't allow for any, any feelings in the heart, doesn't allow for any, any genuine, authentic feeling, a connection, a relationship. And therefore, the only way to get through to it is not by dealing with the symptoms. You have to deal with the root cause. How do you get through the, that arrogance? How do you deal with that arrogance? How do you unclog, how do you open the heart? And he says that you have to realize that the, for the average Jew, the Benini, the ego, the animal soul, that is who we are. That is our identity. So it's, a person has to, has, to go real, has to go through a reality check. You have to assess yourself honestly and objectively and see yourself for what you really are. And when you see yourself what you really are, maybe that will shatter some of that arrogance. That will break through. That will humble. You have to humble that arrogance. Once you humble that arrogance, once the heart, then the heart returns back to its normal function. The heart starts feeling again. Then you can spark, spark an interest. Once again, you can spark an interest. So, he says, firstly, a person has to obsess, has to, Honestly assess himself and realize his situation, who he is. That we are the lowest of all, all of God's creatures. The most miserable of all of God's creatures. Why? Because we are the only ones. It's quite insulting, it's below the belt. But that's the honest truth. Because we are the only ones in the universe who have freedom of choice. We have desires, urges, instincts, desires... Inclinations that are um, destructive, that are counted, that are self-destructive, that are—we have such ugliness inside of us, and no other creature in the universe has. The fact that we even have the the ability, the desire, to go against what's right and what's and what's moral and ethical, and go against the will of Hashem—the fact that we can even have such inclinations and urges—that alone. Places us on the bottom of the totem pole. So why are we so overtaken with ourselves, and we have this over-exaggerated uh, view of ourselves? That alone is enough to humble you and put you into place. Like realize who you are, realize your, your position, and and that should that should sober you up. And then he says, in addition, it's one thing if we if. If we had this ugliness because we have the desire, the ability and the desire to do something that's wrong. To act in a self-destructive way. No other creature in the universe suffers. When was the last time you met an animal that suffers from addictions? That destroys itself. Only human beings. But that's only because of the potential. But in addition to that potential, let's now look at the actual. It's one thing, the potential, but how about the actual? Think of all the the uh, crimes of youthful indiscretions that we've committed. All the self-destructive things that we did, and our foolishness, and our haste. Look at the things, the damage we've done to ourselves. Because nothing gets lost. Everything, Everything that we do in life, everything is recorded, everything is registers, everything leaves an impression, everything has an impact. We don't live in a vacuum. So all the things that we did in our youthful indiscretions, they're all here, they're dear. So look at all the things that we've done to harm and to destroy ourselves and to do things which are totally all the junk food and the junk lifestyle that we've we've acted on and the drunk thoughts and speech. And this is us, these are the choices that we made. And even the sins of our youth, we were immature. You can hardly even blame us. But the bottom line is, it doesn't matter. The poison is there. The damage is done. It's there. So why this boastfulness and this arrogance and this super-inflated, exaggerated sense of self? Like, relax. Put, put, yourself in, put yourself in the right perspective. Put yourself in place. Who are you? Where are you at in life? Why are you so arrogant and boastful and proud of yourself? This false facade, this false ego, this exaggerated ego, that's really covering up on yourself. It's not helping you in life. It's actually obstructing, it's blocking you. It's giving you a heart attack. It's blocking the flow of your blood. It's actually, it's, it's getting in the way of your health. So why this exaggerated sense of self? All of these, all of these, when a person meditates and reflects on this, can help a person crack through that false facade, that ego, that exaggerated sense of self. And maybe once again it could spark that feeling, once again it could spark that interest, that love, that relationship, that, that connection, that, that, that feeling that we have, this relationship that we have with God. It's there, it's intact, it's whole, but we can't access it because of this, road, or this roadblock. It's buried, it's submerged, it's covered up by this shell, this crust this ego, this arrogance, this this exaggerated sense of self, it's time to put our, whip ourselves into shape, put ourselves into shape, to get rid of the the to get rid of the, the, the uh, junk that's in the way. And therefore don't feel sad about shattering, because the only thing that you're shattering is you're shattering something that deserves to be shattered. You're not shattering the person, on the contrary. You're shattering this false persona that we've created, this false exaggerated sense of self, this facade that we've created, this crust that doesn't allow us to have a genuine feeling. That doesn't allow us to really feel because if God and the godly spark within us is the center of our being, if we don't have a clear an open heart and an open relationship with God, then we can't have a real relationship with ourselves and we can't have a real relationship with all those around us because this is the the foundation of our being this is the center of our being so if if we don't get godliness right if we're so off about the very core and center that's located at the center of our being the godly spark how are we going to get anything right? We, we don't get ourselves right we're not in touch with ourselves In other words, when you're not in touch with God, you're not in touch with yourself. When you're not in touch with yourself, you're not in touch with anyone around you. So this false persona, this facade, this arrogance, this ego, this exaggerated sense of self, which actually is alienating us from our centers, alienating us from our true nature, from our true core and essence, is alienating us from God, and it's causing this apathy and this indifference and this... This has to be shattered. This, there's nothing good here. There's nothing good here that, that needs to be salvaged. This is a pure... It's pure arrogance, and it's a pure facade, and it's a pure illusion, and there's no reality to it. So don't start reasoning, and don't start arguing. This false persona has to be crushed. And there's a, a beautiful story in the Talmud that... Um, Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon ben Yehoi, bar Yehoi, the author of the Zohar, he was traveling, and he meets a very ugly person. And he turns to him and he says, you know, you're the ugliest person I've ever seen in my life. And the person says, what do you want from me? Go go to the Maker who created me. God created me. And he apologized to him and refused to accept his apology. And he saw his students, he followed the whole entourage of students. And then he came to town and everyone came to greet him the illustrious Rabbi, Rabbi Allah, the son of Rabbi Shimon Ba-Yichai himself. And he said to him, Who are you coming to greet? He said, This wonderful rabbi. He says, he Wonderful rabbi. you, you know what? He, he insulted me. What a horrible person. And they, finally they appeased him and they said, Please forgive him. And now what happened here the I mean, loss of Rabbi Shimon the last Rabbi Jewish leader went around insulting people just because they were ugly and the explanation is he wasn't talking about his physical, physical ugliness he was talking about his character It was in a spiritual ugliness internally he was ugly his character traits his arrogance so he looked at him he says, wow, he's so ugly. Because nothing can get through to him. He was so ugly, he was so arrogant, he was so self-absorbed, he was so self-centered, he couldn't reach him. He was apathetic, indifferent. He looked at him he said, he's never seen someone who's so materialistic, someone who's so self-absorbed. He's not open to anything. His heart is just shut down. Apathetic, indifferent, couldn't care less about anything spiritual, anything godly. There's no hunger, there's no yearning, there's no seeking, there's no searching. There's, there's nothing how am I going to get through to him to sit and, and, to, and to talk philosophy with him and to excite him? He's not even a vessel for it. There's nobody home. There's nobody to talk to. The guy is drunk and materialist. So what do you do when you meet someone who's drunk? you got to slap him in the face to sober him up. So he says, I'd better slap him in the face. Let me really insult him. And that will wake him up. And boy, did it wake him up. He got an insult from the great rabbi No one likes to be insulted, and no one likes to consider themselves a brute. No one likes to admit that they're really a brute and a beast, and maybe they're living that type of life, but everyone likes to think of themselves as cultured, as, as, you know. And here the rabbi told him, as is, exactly who he was. He says, you're the most ugliest being, creature I've ever met in my life. And he was taken aback. And how did he respond? He immediately responded go to the maker, go to my maker, go to my creator, he created me this way. And Rabbi Lozar, he says, maybe I underestimated. Because the fact that he immediately, immediately responded and says, go to God, that means maybe I misjudged him. Maybe God wasn't so remote in his life. Because that, that was his first response. So therefore he apologized immediately. He says, maybe I, mis- I, mis- I misjudged you. And I was too harsh. He didn't need such harsh treatment, such harsh medicine. And he asked his forgiveness. And the people appeased him, and finally he gave his, he gave his forgiveness. And the same thing we find with the very first Jew, Avraham. Avraham and Sarah were the kindest human beings. They taught us kindness, they were the epitome of kindness. Their tent was open, all four doors. Have you ever been to Beersheba? Beersheba was the, the, the southernmost uh, tip of Israel. And that was the crossroad to the whole civilized world in those days, in, in, in that age. And Avram had a five-star hotel that he ran. And he didn't charge anyone. Everyone was welcome to come into his hotel. He served them five-course dinner. He asked for nothing in return. He gave them a bed, five-star accommodations. All he asked was one thing. At the end of the meal, he says, Now, please bench. Say grace after the meal. Thank God. All this wonderful food. Most people obliged, but there were few individuals, hardcore atheists, and they said, "Absolutely not. We don't believe in God." So Avram says, "Really? Okay." So he handed them a bill. Where else are you going to get, in the middle of the <laughs> middle of a desert? Where else are you going to get five-star accommodation? And all seasons, he had a royal table, a royal feast. So he, he said, listen, if this world is a jungle and it's just a marketplace, and the only thing you worship is the almighty dollar, and the only thing you worship is yourself, okay, well, in the jungle, this is the value of what I gave you. And he would hand them such a bill, you know, five-star accommodations. They saw the bill. They said, you know, I think I'm beginning to understand what you, what you what are you trying to tell me? I think I'm beginning to see the light. <laughs> that there, there is a God. And they would say the grace after the meal. Now, what was the point? Avram was twisting their arm to say the grace after the meal. If, I mean, obviously he was pressuring them. He was forcing them. So what was the meaning of them saying the grace after the meal? And the answer is because there are no atheists in Foxholes. In the moment of truth, deep down, everyone believes. Everyone has faith. Everyone has some connection to God. Everyone has created an image of God. All human beings. But there was a shell, there was a crust, there was a thick crust, a coarseness, which came as a result of a life of indulgence, a life without any restraints, a life without any responsibility, a very selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed life. And this creates an arrogance, and this creates apathy and indifference to anything spiritual. And Avram couldn't reach that person. He saw this person was unreachable. Because even after showering them with such kindness and such goodness, that he personally, they personally just experienced the results of godliness. Avram was a godly person. Everything he did was because he was a godly person. Because God gives us free and in everything we have, he gives us gratuitously, he gives us life, he gives us health, he gives us a, a success. Whatever we have, he gives us without asking any. So Avram in turn also became godly and also gave. So they were immersed in holiness and godliness and nothing reached them. With all their arrogance, after being on the receiving end, receiving all this wonderful, being showered with all this wonderful kindness, it didn't move them one iota. Most people were moved. Most people were touched by this kindness. And they thank God. But they were not touched one iota. So Avram saw there's no way to reach these people. How do you deal with apathy and indifference? The person is not reachable. So he says, I'm going to have to crack. I'm going to have to crack the shell. So the, the loving Avram, who couldn't hurt a fly, suddenly turned into this, this very mean, tough person, and he pressured them. And he put a lot of pressure on them. and He gave them a bill. He said, you're not leaving it until you pay this bill. If you don't want to say grace, that's fine. It's your choice. But then, then you're going to have to pay this bill. But the purpose wasn't just to be mean and tough toughen them. The purpose was to elicit the response because once he cracked their shell, once he slapped them across the face, and it stung and it hurt. But then they woke up. They sobered up. And the moment they sobered up, he says, ah, I'm beginning, to, I think I know what you mean. Of course I know there's a God. It's like the story the two people had a bet. They can make the donkey move without hitting the donkey, just by speaking to the donkey a hundred dollar bet he walks to the donkey he says move <laughs> might as well be talking to the wall <laughs> nothing move go nothing finally he takes his takes his stick and hits the donkey and as he hits it he says go and the donkey moves and he turns to his friend okay give me the hundred dollars I made the donkey move he says no 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 the bet was you can make the donkey move just by speaking to the donkey you hit the donkey he says no you don't understand the donkey moved because I spoke to the donkey. I just hit it to get his attention. <laughs> once, once I got his attention, then he heard me. And he says, go, oh, now I hear you. So that's, that's the inner donkey within us. When our donkey is so coarse and so grotesque, we just stop hearing, we stop listening. Not only do we stop listening, we stop listening to ourselves. We stop hearing our soul, we stop hearing ourselves, our, our inner voice, our true voice. We just stop listening. And we don't respond anymore. We become unreachable. So what do you do with a donkey that's not listening? Or can't listen, or lost his ability to listen. He's apathetic, indifferent, couldn't care less. you got to give a slap. And the wise person doesn't wait for God to slap us. Because, unfortunately, God knows how to slap when he wants. But we slap ourselves. Better slap yourself. Sober yourself up. And that's what the Alt-Rebbe is giving us. Precious advice. This is priceless advice. An antidote to our crassness, our coarseness, our selfishness, self-centeredness, our apathy, indifference. He says, slap yourself up. And no harm will come to it. This is, this is all healthy. This is all good. Because the only thing you're slapping is you're slapping the donkey. You're not slapping your real self. Your real self is trapped inside that donkey. You can't, you can't, it has no outlet. You can't access it. You stop feeling. You become numb. You don't feel anymore. You don't respond anymore to normal feelings and normal stimulation. So let's, we have to get you back on the road to, you, to your humanity. Start feeling again. Re-spark, rekindle that feeling, that relationship, that excitement that we all have. We all have, and we all would like to have a relationship with God. And, you know, like in any other relationship, there's an excitement, there's a thrill, it's it's a real relationship. But once you become so apathetic and indifferent and and you couldn't care less, then it's very, very hard to break through. So you have to crack through that arrogance. And one of the ways of cracking through that arrogance is reminding yourself, just reminding yourself of all those moments that we're not proud of. All those youthful indiscretions, all those things that we did in our past, that all those skeletons in the closet that we're not proud of. Hopefully it's only in the past. <laughs> but um, all the things that uh, we're not so proud of. And you know, you can deflate, deflate this, this false facade, this false persona, this false exaggerated ego that we've created as a, def- as a defense. And it really doesn't protect us. It's really not doing us any good. So deflate it. Deflate the balloon. And by deflating your balloon... Then your inner heart will be able to emerge. And then you'll be able to feel once again and build this relationship and go forward joyfully with excitement, with, with feeling. With. Okay. you like to read? Especially so. On top of page 381.
0: Especially so if he calls to mind the contamination of his soul with the sin of youth and the blemish he has wrought thereby in the supernal worlds, the source of his soul. The fact that they were sins of youth, belonging to a time and to a spiritual level, from which he may presently be far removed, is irrelevant in these supernal worlds, where everything is timeless, and it is as if he had caused the blemish and defiled himself this very day, God forbid. True, he may already have repented sincerely, and thereby removed the blemish and cleansed himself. But the essence of repentance is in the heart, and in the heart there are many distinctions and levels. Moreover, everything depends on what kind of a man he is. The greater his stature, the higher the level of repentance required of him, and on the time and place in which he now stands as is known to the knowing. Whenever and wherever one is less tempted by a particular sin, a deeper and loftier level of repentance is expected of him for having committed that sin than at a time when he is more strongly tempted and must fight more insistently to resist that temptation. Similarly, time and place create other differences with respect to repentance. Therefore, judging by one's present situation, his earlier repentance may be inadequate in erasing his past sins. Perhaps then the absence of a higher form of repentance required of him now causes his sins to interpose between himself and God, preventing the light of his soul from penetrating his heart, as the altar Rebbe continues.
1: A person is, is dynamic. Our life is dynamic. It's vibrant. It's dynamic. We're constantly growing. We're constantly changing. We're constantly being recreated. And everything that happened in our past is also being recreated because that's part of our life. You can't pretend it didn't happen. It's part of your life. And therefore, as you grow, as you grow from one level to the higher level, so maybe in a previous level, your repentance was adequate. Imagine, take for example, if you're wearing a dark suit. Okay, so a little stain won't show up. But imagine as your suit gets lighter and lighter, and suddenly you're wearing a pure white silk, <laughs> silk suit, the smallest speck suddenly shows up. So when you were in a lower level, the repentance was adequate. You wiped away the stain. There was a huge stain which is glaringly obvious. You wiped it away. and Now you're fine. You're fit. You're clean. You're perfect. But then as you grow up, suddenly that becomes inadequate because now you have a much finer suit. And now even a smaller stain that before you could hardly even see it, and now now suddenly it shows up. So in general, life moves on. You have to grow. You know, what was good enough yesterday is not good enough today. Imagine a child comes to shul with a new suit, showing off the new suit, Shabbos, beautiful suit, it fits them perfectly, they're so proud. Everyone compliments the child on the suit. But if three years later he walks into shul with the same suit and (laughs) sleeps, reaches up to here, and the pants reaches just past his knees. He's wondering why everyone was looking at it. But it was a good suit three years ago. Yes, three years ago it was a perfect suit. It fit you perfectly, but you're three years older. You've grown, and now it no longer fits. So it's, not, it's no longer a fit. Yes, that was a good shuva. It was a perfect teshuva. It was a perfect return and repentance for the level you were at three years ago. But now, as you advance, as you go higher, you have to revisit that experience, that event. And now it requires a deeper level of teshuvah, because that event will never really disappear. You can't pretend that something happened in your life didn't happen. So if you've done something wrong in your life, it's there, and it will remain with you for the rest of your life. The question is how you deal with it. The process of teshuvah is reaching into your past and changing that negative into a positive, either neutralizing that negative or, at a higher level, transforming, changing the negative into a positive. And that worked. Three years ago it worked. Or the level you were at previously, it worked. But now you've advanced. You've taken a quantum leap forward. You're on a much higher level. So now that event now is coming back to haunt you. Because the way you dealt with it a few years ago or in your previous level, that doesn't work anymore. It requires something much deeper. You have to revisit and you you have to find a much deeper place inside of you. A much deeper level of repentance. You know, the Hebrew word for year, shanah, comes from the word to repeat. Because we're constantly repeating. So the negatives are repeated, but also the positive is repeated. So now that the negative shows up again, you have to repeat the teshuva. The teshuva that you did three years ago was not inadequate. Now you need a higher level of teshuva, which is one of the reasons why there's a mitzvah in the Torah to do teshuva at least once a year on Yom Kippur. What if a person went through the entire year and, and didn't sin? I was forgiven last Yom Kippur. Why do I need the Yom Kippur? Why, what's the big deal at Yom Kippur? And the answer is because I'm a year older and a year advanced, so the sins of the previous year, the Yom Kippur forgave, now I need a whole new level of repentance. I need a whole, I have to revisit that whole thing and I have to reach a much deeper level of reconciliation and have a reconciliation reorganizing on a much higher level and a much deeper level. You know, it's not unlike life. That's the process of life. There's always, as much as you advance, every level you advance, you discover you have to reach a higher level of, of, um, of integration because the previous answer worked on a lower level. Now you reach a higher level, suddenly that answer doesn't work anymore. I need a deeper answer, a deeper explanation. And as you grow, you'll always need a deeper explanation. And the question will always come back in a more complex form. It gets more and more complex. Every level you go, it gets more complex. And then the answer also gets more, um, you know, the uh, integration also is much deeper and more satisfying and more whole. So this is an ongoing process. So whatever happens in our life is dynamic. It's vibrant. It's ongoing. It's constantly being recreated. And so even if you did an adequate teshuva, that was adequate then, but now it's not adequate. And therefore I have to, it requires a whole new level of teshuva. Okay, I can continue. Consequently,
0: Consequently, now at this time, when observing himself, he sees that the light of the soul does not penetrate into him. It is evident that either A, his repentance has not been accepted and his sins still separate him from godliness, or B, it is desired that he be raised to a more sublime level of repentance, coming from a point yet deeper in his heart than his earlier repentance.
1: So obviously now that you see that your life is suddenly blocked you feel apathy indifference and spiritually closed your heart shuts down so obviously that sin or that negative experience in the past is not coming back to haunt me perhaps in the past i have neutralized that negative experience and that and i've even transformed it into a positive and i was able to go forward and grow but now that I find my path to spirituality is blocked and my heart just is, is closed, obviously that negative energy is pulling me down. Because anything that we did, do in our lives hasn't, has an effect on us. And it generates negative energy. A negative experience in our life or negative, a negative sin creates a negative energy and, and, and um, blocks our path to growth and actually pulls us down. So... Obviously, I need now. I need to deal with it once again, and I have to discover a deeper place and able to be able to overcome this negative negative energy. I have to find a much deeper level, a much deeper deeper place inside of me in order to be able to go forward. So that's that's the be- the biggest proof. If we need any proof, that's how we can personally experience how that negativity didn't go away. Maybe it went away for a while because we dealt with it adequately for the level we're at today. But now, obviously, we're in a higher level, and it's a signal. It's a signal from God. It's a positive signal. It's not a negative. It's a positive thing. God is saying, listen, it's time to grow up, time to move on. You're ready for the next level. You're stagnating. You're, you're, being, you're straightjacketing yourself. Time to go. Time to move on. So this, this sudden blockage and obstacle, and it, it appears to be negative, but it's really, it's really a, a healthy... A healthy sign that, come on, you've outgrown that stage. You've graduated that stage. Move on already. You can't go back to first grade. Come on, you you can't do it over and over again. It's time to move on to second grade. You've done that, been there. Come on, time to take the next quantum leap forward. Time to make a a, a push forward. As dramatic as the change was the first time, when you did the shuvah, from changing your negative into a positive that was a quantum leap that was a dramatic movement forward it wasn't just a gradual growth from step to step it was a dramatic transformation now you're ready for the next dramatic transformation it's time to to leap forward so it's it's a healthy thing it's a good thing it's a helpful sign
0: Far from indicating divine displeasure, the rejection of his repentance in this latter case points to divine favor, a desire to raise this person to yet greater heights of repentance. Hence the difficulties in his divine service and the Timtum Halev, so that he will call forth greater resources from within himself and repent more deeply. So it
1: doesn't mean that his previous service was false, superficial, inadequate. No, your previous service was genuine. And because it was genuine, now you're ready to move on. So it it doesn't retroactively, don't question your previous, the genuineness of your previous level. What you experienced previously prior to this feeling of apathy and this shutting down of the heart, clogging of the heart, that was genuine. Feel good about it. And now you're ready to move on. So now you need a new breakthrough. You need need something stronger than just the ordinary gradual day-to-day movement and growth, baby steps, step-by-step. You need a a breakthrough. You need a major push. You need a a revolution. You need a stirring of the soul. You need a rekindling, a reigniting. You need to discover something new. A new level, a new height, a new depth, a new... uh Want to continue? For this reason...
0: For this reason King David said, despite the fact that he was a tzaddik, who was also able to say of himself, my heart is a void within me, which means, as Rashi comments, the evil impulse is as if dead within me. Despite this, he would still say, my sin is constantly before me. Why was it necessary for a man of David's caliber to constantly bear in mind his past sins? Surely he had repented for them adequately. Obviously, then, the memory is necessary in order to spur one on to greater heights within the ranks of holiness, to deeper levels of repentance, as said earlier.
1: Here he's bringing a proof to something novel that he's describing here. He's saying that not only in the case when a person sinned, do the sins come back to haunt us because now we're more mature, we're in a higher level, so the repentance also has to be a more mature uh, repentance. But he's saying even in the case when a person didn't sin, you lived a perfect life. And he brings a proof. That's why he has to bring a scriptural proof. He brings a proof from King David. King David had no evil inclination. And nevertheless, he says, my sin is always before me. Because even a person who has a perfect spiritual life, as perfect as it is, when it comes time to move on, that person will experience a, a clogging of the heart, and which is a signal that it's time for the next breakthrough, that there's something wrong. So, this obstacle is not here just to slow you down or just an obstacle, it's here to wake you up and to signal to you that it's time to really take a quantum leap How forward.
0: Can anyone have a perfect spiritual life? And did you say King David had no use in her? How is that possible? How is it possible? <laughs>
1: well, I would, uh, you, can, you can go on chapters 9 and 10. Those two chapters describe the, the tzaddik. The tzaddik is a Jew who has no yetzahar, no evil inclination. It's one or two in every generation. And uh, over there, he discusses it at a great length the type of Jew, uh, the tzaddik. Like King David, Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Moses, King—you know, King Solomon, the Balshemta, the Rebbe. I mean, you're talking about a different caliber of a person, head and shoulders above all of us, um, almost like a spiritual Superman. But those people exist; there are such people. But that's discussed here at length, and. Um, so even King David said that his sin was always constantly before him in order to spur him on to greater heights, that, it, uh, that no matter what level he reached, he always had that challenge. That challenge always remained. As he went from one level to the next, That challenge always remained and spurred him on to the next breakthrough, to reach even greater heights. Till now he was talking to the person who who had sinned or youthful indiscretions or things that embarrass us or things that we're not too proud of, which is enough to tone down your ego, deflate your ego a little, or your arrogance, or assess yourself a little more realistically, to be honest, a little honest feedback, a little honest objective, to be able to view ourselves objectively and honestly. Put yourself in the place, in the right perspective. And which can deflate some of that arrogance and allow you once again to feel, to, to, to regain that appetite, to rekindle that, that interest and that excitement and that feeling and that relationship. Now he's going to talk to the person who never sinned. Imagine, it's hard to, ima- hard to imagine, but it's possible. Imagine a person who never sinned, has no youthful indiscretions. From, from childhood, always was in the straight and the narrow, always did the right thing never stumbled, never has no skeletons in the closet, has nothing to be ashamed of or lived a perfect life, inside like outside, outside like inside, consistent. They have no hidden life, double life. And suddenly they're confronted with this apathy, which happens to everyone. There are moments when your heart just closes, shuts down, you're just apathetic and different, couldn't care less, there's no energy, there's no hunger, there's no excitement, there's no how do you How do you how do you how do you reach that? How does that person reach so you continue, even he?
0: Even he who is innocent of the grievous sins of youth but yet wants to attain a broken spirit should set his heart to fulfill the counsel of the holy Zohar, to be a master of accounts. This means that he should do the spiritual accounting described below as a master, a proprietor, to whom each set of figures represents either a profit or a loss that directly affects him, rather than as a servant, a hired accountant, who can view whatever bottom line eventuates with academic detachment.
1: So the Zohar always refers to, not the accountant, but master of the accounts. de the a master of the accounts. In other words, be like the owner of the business who's making an accounting. There's a big difference between the accountant making an accounting and the owner making an accounting. The accountant could work, could be very dedicated, 18 hours a day. But at the end of the day, he closes the office, he goes home, he doesn't think about it, doesn't dream about it. It's not his business. He gets paid either way. The business is bankrupt, the business is making money. You know, it's, it's, it's not his business. The owner of the business dreams the business, eats the business, sleeps the business 24-7. If the business is not doing well... That's his life on the line, his money on the line, his life savings, his reputation. He can't sleep at night. He's not looking for excuses. He's not looking, you know, he wants the truth, and he wants to be honest because it's my business at stake. So when a person makes an accounting, a spiritual accounting, a self-accounting, when you, um, when you do spiritual bookkeeping, you have to do it like it's your master, like you care, it's my life at stake. When it's your life at stake, There's honesty. You're not interested in in fudging the numbers. You're not interested in spin. You're not interested. You want the brutal truth. You want the honest truth. It's my life. (laughs) You care about your life. When you care about your life, then then you want to be honest. You want honesty. You're not interested in kidding anyone. So make that type of accounting, a spiritual accounting. Um, Feel, care about your life, because it's your life that's on the line. And if you care about it, Then you'll be honest and objective and continue.
0: This means that he should take stock with his soul of all his thoughts, utterances and actions that have come and gone since the day he came into being and until the present day. Were they all of the realm of holiness or of the realm of impurity, God forbid? This latter realm includes also any thought, utterance, or action not directed toward God, His will, and His service, even when they are not actually sinful, since this is the meaning of the term sitra Ahra, not necessarily evil, but simply the other side. The quote-unquote side realm that is not holy, thus anything that does not contain holiness, belongs to the realm of impurity as explained earlier in chapter 6.
1: Even if, if this individual never sinned, never did anything wrong, but surely if he made a master accounting, like, like the owner making an accounting of his life, he can remember many times that he engaged in kosher activity, all kosher activity, but without any thought of, of anything godly. No godly purpose, no godly intent. He just ate. He ate for, for the sake of eating. You're hungry. He you ate. You're thirsty. You drank. You went about your life innocent. Innocent, pure. You didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything immoral. You didn't do anything unethical. You didn't didn't do anything wrong. But you you didn't do anything right either. You didn't think about... There was no divine intent. There was no godly intent. And for the Jew, there is no other reality. The definition of holiness is that there is no other reality but God. And therefore, all of our activities, 24-7, Everything that we do has to be with a divine intent. has to be permeated with godliness, with a sense of godliness, a feeling for God. We're doing this, it's part of my godly mission. My table is the altar, the act of eating, I'm offering a sacrifice to Hashem. You make a blessing before, you make a blessing after. Everything that you do, you go about your business, you think to yourself, I'm God's ambassador. This is my mission. I am, I'm, this is my connection to God. I'm not just Surviving the rat race and paying my bills—something much deeper going on. I am God's representative in my business and trying to teach my example. So, whatever a Jew does twenty-four-seven, really should be permeated with godliness. And if it's not permeated with godliness, then automatically it belongs to the other side. It's disconnected, and it, it falls on the other side of klipa, the antithesis of holiness. So, when this individual will remember. This individual will remember all of his activities and how so many of them, although they were kosher, but there was no divine intent, no godly intent. And therefore, during those times, he was unplugged. He was disconnected. And he did not bring holiness into the world and did not bring godliness into the world. On the contrary, during those moments, he just brought the antithesis of holiness into the world even by going about, innocently, going about just eating and drinking and surviving and doing business, nothing, immoral, nothing, just going about doing culture activities, a lot culture activities. But since there was no divine intent and there was no connection with godliness, no conscious awareness of godliness, automatically those things become activities that, that are disconnected and that only increase the antithesis of, the antithesis of holiness into this world. So that should, that should shatter the person. That should shatter the, this, this arrogance. Like, the person should realize how disconnected he is and how far off he is from the ideal. We have this exaggerated sense of self that we're the ideal person, the perfect person. Look how great I am. As a matter of fact, this person is even more dangerous than the person who sins. Because the person who sins, after everything is said and done, he knows he did something wrong. <laughs> so he doesn't feel good about it. doesn't feel good. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't feel good about it. It's a weakness. But he knows he did something wrong. The problem is this person is perfect. He did not do anything wrong. Imagine. Even no youthful indiscretions. From when he grew up, straight and the narrow, has no secret life, has no double life, everything he's doing in private, between him and no one is looking into him. Everything he's doing correct. He's doing everything right. And he looks to himself He says, what's wrong with me? There's nothing wrong with me. That's the most dangerous of all. <laughs> when a person thinks there's nothing wrong with him. al he says, you're not the, being the master accountant. Take an honest accounting of yourself. Look yourself in the mirror. There's nothing wrong with you. You're so far from the ideal. You're so far from the whole theme of Judaism, which is the idea of holiness, that the reality of God permeates every aspect of your life. Think honestly. Look back honestly. Could you say that all of your activities 24-7, from when you were growing up, everything, has, everything is permeated with godliness? Who are you kidding? So you're delusional. You're so delusional. You're so far off. In a way, there's nothing, there's nothing more repulsive when a person is so dishonest with himself. So this person, when a person does a master accounting, his heart will really become shattered and broken. He says, look how far I am from the truth. I'm so far from the truth. I'm so disconnected. I'm so off that you feel embarrassed and ashamed and your heart becomes broken. And that's good. Because when there's a broken heart, that's genuine. Then you know that you're, you're connected. Then you know that you're on the right path. Now you can feel that relationship again. Suddenly that hunger returns, that zest, that, 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 that eagerness. But when you're so content, grotesquely content and satisfied, I'm so beautiful, I'm so perfect, I'm so great, and I'm so this, that's the first sign that you're so, so, so
0: far off that it's, 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 it's tragic.
1: Okay, continue. Now it is known.
0: Now, it is known that whenever a person thinks holy thoughts, he becomes, during that time, a chariot for the chambers, hechalot, of holiness whence these thoughts originate, or more precisely, whence their vitality originates. Becoming a chariot means that he becomes completely subservient to these hechalot, to the same degree that a vehicle, having no will of its own, is completely subservient to its driver's will. When he meditates on the love of God, for example, he becomes a vehicle for the supernal chamber of love, and so on. Conversely, when he thinks impure thoughts, he becomes an unclean vehicle for the hechalot of impurity, whence all impure thoughts originate. So, too, with speech and action. Thus, even one who cannot call to mind any past sins can humble his spirit by contemplating how often he has become a vehicle for impurity through his thoughts, words, and actions, which, though not sinful, were still of the realm of the Sitra achra, since they were not directed toward godliness.
1: So just like in the, in the case of a mitzvah, when you do a mitzvah, you become a tool, an expression of holiness, of godliness. You become a tool to God's will. You become an implement to God's will. So you draw down holiness into this world, vice versa. When you, uh, when you experience, when you do an activity that has nothing to do with God, disconnected from God, then you become a tool for the the antithesis of godliness and you draw down into this world and onto your soul you draw down the antithesis of godliness you become a tool an implement a chariot a vehicle for forces of, of, of impurity and you contaminate yourself and you bring into this world you bring all that negative energy into this world and it's that negative energy that's dragging you down why are you suddenly so clogged up why is your heart shut down Why are you suddenly so apathetic and so indifferent and you couldn't care less? It's all that negative energy that you've drawn down. It's a consequence, not a punishment. It's a consequence. Because when you act holy and you connect with the divine and you inject Hashem into your activity, into your daily mundane activity, when godliness permeates all of your activities, you bring holiness into the world, into your life, into your soul. And then you feel alive and your heart is alive and you feel connected. Why the sudden apathy and indifference? It's because as a result of your behavior and because God has nothing to do with your activity and godliness does not permeate your life, therefore you've drawn down this impurity that clogs up this negative energy that just shuts down your heart. It clogs up the arteries and doesn't allow the uh, spiritual blood to flow. And therefore, suddenly you feel cold and different, apathetic. So when you realize it, that, that will shatter your heart. That will break through your arrogance and your smugness and grotesque sense of contentness and, and that foolish pride and that arrogant pride that's not doing you any favors. It's just destroying you and you're destroying yourself. So this will, when, when your heart is shattered into a thousand pieces, now once again you can reconnect. You can reconnect with godliness.
0: Let him further consider his dreams in order to humble his spirit. For one may learn more about himself from his dreams than from his waking conscious thoughts. For the most part, they are vanity and an affliction of the spirit. For his soul does not ascend heavenward during his sleep, since it is written, Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Meaning, in our context, whose soul shall rise heavenward while he sleeps to see and absorb matters of Torah and holiness which will in turn be reflected in his dreams. And the next verse gives the answer, he that has clean hands and a pure heart, implying that the soul of one whose hands and heart are not pure does not ascend, and that is why his dreams are a patchwork of vanity and foolishness. Furthermore, those originating from the evil side come and detach themselves to him and inform him in his dreams of mundane affairs.
1: It could be a serious dream, and they just show him about mundane affairs, business, other other things continue, but sometimes.
0: And sometimes mock him and show him false things and torment him in his dreams, and so on. As stated in the Zohar on Vayikra, page 25 AB. See it there discussed at length. We thus see from the Zohar that one may evaluate himself by studying the contents of his dreams. Thereby, he can humble his spirit, even if he finds himself free of sin, and in this way, he may crush the sitra achra within him, as explained above.
1: So he's saying, even if, let's say, on the surface, a person doesn't find anything wrong with himself, he honestly looks at his life. He's the master accountant. He cares about his life, and he's looking honestly and objectively. And just like, you have to be honest. You have to know your strengths and you have to know your weaknesses. Being, doing an accounting doesn't mean finding fault where there is no fault. Not being false. Not putting yourself down just for the sake of putting yourself down. But uh, uh, assessing yourself honestly, objectively. Knowing your strengths and your weaknesses. Just like a person has to be honest. You have to know your weaknesses. You also have to be honest and you have to know your strengths. Honesty works both ways. You can't just be honest about all the negatives. (laughs) You have to be honest about the positives too. So you have to be honest. You have to know yourself, uh, your strengths. You have to strengthen your strengths. Appreciate your strengths. Strengthen them. Be grateful for them. Continue to grow in your strengths. Then you also have to know your weak spots, your vulnerable spots. Those that could be fixed need to be fixed. Those that are ruined have to be You have to get them out of your life. Those negative behaviors, toxic behavior, that don't add anything, that are completely toxic and negative, you have to cut out from your life. Um, They can't be redeemed. So you have to... It's like taking apart something that's not working. So you take it apart. There are things that are good. You put it in one pile. There are things that are broken. You're drunk. You throw them out. And then there are things that need to be fixed. So when a person is honest with himself... You have to know your strength and continue doing what you're doing and do it even better and stronger and deeper and, and you, have, you have to know those things that are toxic and just you have to cut out of your life. If they're not redeemable. If you're speaking slander or you're telling lies, you're doing things that are just wrong, toxic. Slice it out of your life. And then you have the things in your life that need, need fixing. So let's say a person is honest with himself. He does a real accounting like the master and didn't do anything wrong. He has no youthful indiscretion. As a matter of fact godliness does permeate his life. He's always thinking about Hashem before he eats. He makes a blessing before and he branches after and he's constantly thinking and he's constantly injecting an awareness of God. I'm eating to have the strength in order to serve God. And he goes about his business. He's thinking I'm God's uh, emissary, ambassador. I'm representing him and by carrying myself as a Jew and living a a moral, ethical, spiritual life I'm teaching by example. He looks at his life. He says, you know, I mean... There's nothing wrong. I don't understand why suddenly my heart clogged up. Why suddenly this apathy and this indifference and I stopped caring. I don't understand why. So Al Tarebi says, he said, let's take a look under the hood. Let's look what's going on subconsciously. You want to know what a person is all about? Let's take a look at a person's dreams. The dreams are very revealing. Those dreams reveal what's really going on. Because maybe you know, you're just aware of yourself, your conscious self. But there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. And perhaps you're blocking out that part within you. And you're just not, it's not accessible to you and it's not available to you. But dreams are a giveaway. What are you dreaming about? What's the content of your dreams? Because you dream, the dreams are based on the way you've lived how you lived your life that day. So if a person led a spiritual life, a deep life, he spent the day, and it was a meaningful day, and it was an uplifting day, and it was a deep day, and the dreams will also be of a different caliber. You'll dream, dreams will inspire you, there'll be wholesome dreams, powerful dreams, informative dreams, good dreams, pleasant dreams. But if the dreams are... You're not dreaming of Torah in your dreams. <laughs> you're not dreaming of, of holiness. You're not dreaming of the Rebbe in your dreams of a holy people. What are you dreaming? You're dreaming about Wall Street. <laughs> you're dreaming about business in your dreams. Or you're dreaming just nonsensical dreams. That tells me that your soul, it tells yourself that your soul is so far away, so removed from anything godly and holy. That you're practically delusional. You think you're so good and so perfect. But the truth is, what's really going on inside, you're so far removed from holiness and godliness. It's not really part of you. Because the dream is a moment of truth. The dream is when you can really find out where's the person really at. Where's your mind really at? What are you really into? What's really going on inside? And shockingly, externally, it's a perfect picture. But that's the problem. It's a picture. It's artificial. It's not real. The proof is the dream is a moment of truth. That's the real you. And sadly, where's the real you at? What's on your mind? What are you dreaming of? What are you yearning for? What do you care about? It's not Torah. It's not mitzvot. It's not godliness. It's not God. You're dreaming and yearning about materialism. That's what your life is all about. So you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be embarrassed. And that's enough to crush you because it's, it's almost like a false... This, you created this false persona. You, you're delusional. You're deluding yourself. You're being dishonest with yourself. You're so disconnected that you don't even realize how disconnected you are. And you're fooling yourself thinking you're perfect. And look how far you are. You're so far. The dream is a window. It's a window into your soul. It's a window into your subconscious. It's a gift that God gave us. You can really tell where a person is at from his dreams. Because a dream is not rational and conscious. When you're rational and conscious, you can control. So sometimes you're so controlling that you create this persona, and it's perfect. Picture perfect. That's exactly what it is. It's picture perfect. It's false. There's nobody home. And then the dream reveals what's really going on, the real you. And it's not so pretty. And that's enough to shake your heart. That's enough to really to really crush you and, and like really put, put yourself into place and say, wait a minute, you know, I I better start all over again. Something is something is off here, something is totally wrong. There's such a there's such a dissonance, there's such a disconnect between reality and and this let's pretend world, this Disney world that I've created, this let's pretend everything is smiling and everything is wonderful. You know, it, it, it's 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 a let's pretend. Mickey Mouse, this is not real. So I, bet, I better wake up. I better get my act together. I have to start. I didn't even start yet. I'm content and satisfied and so proud. What, what, who am I kidding? I better, start, I better start. I have to go back to first grade. I have to go back into diapers and start all over again. So this is humbling. This, is, this can get through to a person. When a person realizes this and you wake up and you realize... You know, I'm so far off. How, how can I be so delusional? How can I be so far off? How can I kid myself? Because dreams don't lie. I can delude myself and think I'm perfect, but then comes along a dream and says, wait a minute, wake up. The dream is a wake-up call. <laughs> it's the alarm clock ringing. Hello. Your assessment of yourself is so far off the mark. It's not even funny. It's, it's tragic. How delusional, our capacity for self-delusion is infinite. How so off, we can be so off. It's like the story of Rabbi Yochanan Ben Rabbi Yochanan Ben in his deathbed, he was 120 years old. When he was 80 years old, he became the leader of the Jewish people. He led the Jewish people during the destruction of the Second Temple. And basically, the Jewish people survived because of him. And at his deathbed, his students saw him crying. He says, Rabbi, why are you crying? He says, because I don't know which path they're going to lead me once I pass away. Am I going to the right or am I going to the left am I going to Gan Eden, to the Garden of Eden or am I going to hell the question is Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakeh doesn't know which path he's being led on Rabbi Yochanan Ben was like a reincarnation of Moses he also lived 120 years and he led the Jewish people for 40 years and in such a critical time in history and his students were the greatest leading rabbis of the Talmud Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakeh doesn't know which path he's going to lead him whether the Garden of Eden or the other path. What's going on here? And the answer is, one of the explanations is, Rabbi Yechlem ben Zakkai knew on a conscious level, he's perfect. He was picture perfect. It doesn't get better than that. Ideal. Rabbi Yechlem ben Zakkai says, but what's really going on inside of me? Inside of myself? Subconsciously. Where am I really at? Maybe... On the, it's a facade. It's Disney World. Everyone is smiling. It looks beautiful. Everyone is smiling. They get, they get you to buy that five-dollar <laughs> cup of water. Everything is beautiful. Everything is perfect. But the, all it is is a facade. It's not real. It's Mickey Mouse. How do I know? How do I know it's real? Where am I really at? I don't know what's going on inside. Maybe my soul. Deep down, I could be rotten, corrupt. I could be so far off. I could be so, so, my mind is not into it. My heart is not into it. It's not the real me. He says, I don't know. Just because 120 years, externally, I did the right thing. I don't know what's going on inside. So when I come to heaven, the world of souls, I don't know which way my soul is, which, where my soul is at. And That's a very sobering thought. And he was crying. He started to cry. It's enough to crush you. So a person who's so taken by himself and so satisfied and content and, and nothing can get through to him because he's become so arrogant and indifferent and, and couldn't care, stopped caring, stopped feeling that, that, that love and that relationship to God and that connection, that eagerness, that, that enthusiasm, that excitement, that hunger, that thirst for Godliness, you better start taking a good look at yourself. Look in the mirror. An honest look in the mirror. After Rabbi says, and if, if he can't find anything... Let's open the hood. Look at your dreams. See where you're really at. Where's your mind really at? Where's your heart really at? Where's the real you? Who are you? Do you really even know yourself? Or are you so delusional you have no clue? You're so disconnected from reality? And, that, and that's, if a person is honest, it's enough to make you cry. I started crying. And that will crush the arrogance, that will break through the heart. You're crying you're feeling, you're in touch, you're connected. Now the hunger returns. That, that, that enthusiasm, that thirst for godliness, that hunger, you can't get enough Torah and mitzvot, and, 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 and you, want to be, you want to go deeper and more genuine. Now, now, you, now you're back. in. Now you're alive again. Now the heart, the blood is circulating. You're healthy, you're vibrant, you're spiritually healthy and vibrant once again. But until the heart is broken, until the heart is shattered to a thousand pieces, the fire just, just can't get through. It's clogged, it's too thick, it's too... It just can't get through.
2: Let's say uh, you, a person has known the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do, but they're kind of like the, uh, the, the dunce in the classroom. They sit in the back, all of the smart kids are up front. They're doing the best they can, but they keep on making mistakes. And then over time, it finally sinks in, and now they're at a point where there's no way that they could do something wrong because they not only know it intellectually, but they know it at a, at a gut level, and it doesn't even occur to them anymore to do something wrong. They, they just feel the right way to go. Isn't that a, a deeper level of atonement, and doesn't that bring about a little bit of a party? You know, a little bit of a celebration that, okay, now this person that's been sitting in the back, they can actually come up to the right. front of the class now. Right. They may not be a, a tzaddik, but in in a sense, uh because they weren't a tzaddik, they had to put so for, put right. forth so much effort right. to actually just to maybe even get to the middle of the class. <laughs>
1: right. Well that's why the baltruva, the place that the baltruva can reach, the tzaddik can't reach. The baltruva reaches a much higher level than the tzaddik use another analogy, you have the student in the class who's very bright and understands everything the first time around. And then you have, like you said, the dunce in the class whose head is so thick, nothing can get through, as much as the teacher explains. and You just can't get through. But that student persisted
2: mm-hmm.
1: and refused to give up and literally broke their head went over it again and again, drilled their head until they really understood it. And some of the greatest rabbis in Eastern Europe before the wars, they were known. Their classes were legendary. Their lectures were legendary. And the Talmud were legendary. One of them in particular was known. He had a thick head. He couldn't understand anything. But he had such a willpower he decided that nothing is going to stop him. And he would learn every piece of Talmud, chew it over a hundred times till it got through his thick skull. And he worked so hard that he developed one of the most powerful minds in Eastern Europe. He, his his uh, lectures were legendary. You know, The Dean of the Yeshiva. So in a way, a person who understands everything at, on the first, first level Versus, if if you face difficulties, it's difficult for you to understand a subject matter that's difficult for you to understand, and you have many questions, and it doesn't make sense to you, and it's not clear, and then you persist and you dwell in it and you focus on it until and you work hard, you break your head, it's like it's like a murder, and then you figure it out. Firstly, there's a satisfaction in that that the person, the other person, cannot possibly experience. The satisfaction of having worked something through honestly and really working it through until you truly get the concept. But there's also a depth to that concept. There's a depth that the other person is lacking. There's a richness that the other person doesn't have. There's a clarity and a depth because it came as a result of the question, because it came as a result of, 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 of the difficulty. And that's why we find, for example, there are two Talmud. There's the Jerusalem Talmud, and there's the Babylonian Talmud. Most people never even studied the Jerusalem Talmud. The, the accepted Talmud, the Talmud that everyone studies, is the Babylonian Talmud. The halacha, the law, follows the Babylonian Talmud. Never there's a conflict in the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, the Jerusalem Talmud was on a much higher level than the Babylonian Talmud. It was, it was, it was, they were living in Israel. They were on a much more elevated spiritual level. Versus the Babylonian Talmud was written in exile, as the exile deepened, the darkness deepened, grew thicker. And the Jews were in in Iraq, far away from Israel. And, um, I mean, not in Israel, but outside of Israel. And, and yet the law is like the Babylonian Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud is very short, very brief. Because everything was clear. The Babylonian Talmud is almost torturous. Till it reaches a conclusion, there's questions upon question upon question and contradictions and pages upon pages of discussions till till you reach a conclusion. But it, this is like the student, the dunce who had to work hard, who had to overcome the question, versus the student who just has a clear head. Everything is clear. He gets it the first time around. Everything is. But you know, in a certain way, it's also very superficial. It's the student who had to overcome the difficulty, overcome the question, that reaches a much, much richer and much deeper understanding, a much more penetrating understanding, a much more profound understanding than the student who understands it with a good head. And that's why, even the student who has a good head, real learning is only accomplished when you really, it engages your mind, when you really have to break your head. And it's like the, that's like the difference between. Water, rainwater comes from heaven versus well water that flows from the ground. Which water is richer in minerals? Is it the rainwater or is it the well water, spring water? People are buying bottled water. They're not buying uh, rainwater. <laughs> They're buying well water, well spring, Because the well water is much richer because it flows through the ground. Because it has to overcome all those obstacles, therefore it comes out much purer, much richer in minerals than, than even rainwater, which just comes straight from heaven. And that's the story of the soul in general. The soul in heaven above is like the tzaddik. It's perfect. The soul has no obstructions. In heaven there's no apathy. In heaven there's no indifference. In heaven there's no arrogance. There's no ego. In heaven is heavenly. It's blissful, it's heavenly, this clarity, you see godliness, it's tangible. The heart is open, the mind is open, the eyes are open, everything is open, clear. And then the soul journeys into this world. The soul is not born, the body is born, the soul journeys into the body. It's a journey for the soul. And suddenly everything is shut down. The eyes don't see and the ears don't hear and the mind doesn't understand and the heart is clogged and we have to struggle with apathy and indifference and we stop caring. But, you know, when the soul and setbacks and negative behavior, but when the soul overcomes all these obstacles, then it's much richer. It's much deeper. The soul reaches a richness and a depth that the soul cannot possibly achieve in heaven. It's like, it's like when you take a water. Water is very calm by nature. But try p- placing a dam in front of the water. Suddenly this quiet brook turns into this ferocious, powerful energy. If that dam is not built well, if that dam breaks, it's going to sweep everything in its path. It becomes so powerful. Roaring water. That's the story of the soul. The soul is in heaven. It's like a brook. It's calm, serene, serenity. And it comes into this world and suddenly it's blocked. The ego, the arrogance, it blocks the soul. The soul is trapped. The soul is not allowed to express itself. We can't feel and we can't express our feelings. We can't access those feelings and we feel arrogant and apathetic and indifferent and we couldn't care less. We we lose that spiritual hunger. We lose that spiritual appetite. We lose that excitement, that thrill of our relationship with God. But what happens? The soul is not quiet. The soul... Starts agitating. The soul suddenly becomes, turns into this ferocious power that, that pushes everything in its path. That suddenly the sin and everything that's in its path suddenly gets washed away and uprooted. And the negative itself also becomes a positive, also starts flowing with the water. The former obstacle now goes with the flow. So even the negative, not only have you neutralized the negative, the, the negative now goes in the same direction as the water. So th- you feel that breakthrough. There's this powerful energy. So the soul discovers a depth, a power that it didn't even dream of. It never even knew, it never even suspected that it had such strength and such force. It's only by journeying into this world, when we're faced with all these obstacles that we're dealing with here, that we have to overcome this apathy and indifference, which is really the most difficult obstacle of all. When you successfully overcome it, the soul reaches a depth and a richness that it could not possibly have achieved if it would, it would have remained in heaven. In the heavenly heavenly state, so that that's what he said earlier. You have to appreciate it. God is not creating these obstacles just to make life, just to make life fun. <laughs> He's creating these obstacles because it's time, You know, you you have opportunities here. This is an opportunity. You can reach such a level of depth, such a level, such a genuine level, such a richness that you can never ever achieve up in heaven. So it's really an opportunity. It's a positive. It's not a negative.
0: You're right
2: in terms of when you're seeking atonement, and you are bringing forth the aspect of mitzvah. Is there a, a higher degree of mitzvah? Would it be through teaching, or forgiveness, or generosity, or all of those together? I mean, would if if you're really trying to atone, and let's say you you've really learned your lesson, does it weigh upon you now to um, seek every opportunity to? help somebody else to, to teach them or is it better to just be quiet and just be generous and forgiving?
1: Well, it's, it's uh, whatever weak point you had, whatever vulnerable spot you had, it's like a, 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 a rope that was torn. So when you tie the two parts of the rope, you tie a double knot because now that you know that this is the weak point of the rope, it's not enough, one knot is not enough because it, it, it tore, it's ripped apart. You have to doubly strengthen it. So whichever part in your life that you were weak, that part you have to focus on and doubly strengthen it. You know, like uh, pay back or make up for all that. So to strengthen that area in your life, whichever area in your life that was weak that you're repenting on, that's the area in your life that you should really strengthen and doubly, doubly strengthen.
2: So the mitzvah should be expressed in that aspect, in that area?
1: Right, right. So obviously that mitzvah, that particular mitzvah that you... A weekend. That's the mitzvah that you should that you should strengthen yourself uh, most. And uh, but in general, in general, in all all of the mitzvot, whatever you, you do, with a lot more intensity, a lot more power and force. than the one who always grew up in the straight and the narrow, the one who was never challenged, the one who never had to overcome that negativity. Um, so there, there, there's an umph to the mitzvah. There's an intensity, a depth, a power, a force that the tzaddik can never possibly experience. That's why we see that when does the, holy, when does the high priest, the holiest Jew, enter uh, in the holiest day of the year into the holiest spot on earth? One day, on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is all about teshuvah. So where the tzaddik is not allowed in, the tzaddik is never allowed in to the holy of holies. On Yom Kippur, through the power of the it propels you into the innermost chamber, into the holy of holies. Because the mitzvah that you're doing, when you do teshuva, has such intensity to it, has such hunger to it, there's such a hunger and there's such a yearning and there's such a, uh, an intensity, a power, a force that the tzaddik can never, ever possibly achieve. And um, when the soul is in heaven, the soul can never possibly achieve such intensity, such, such a depth. And that's why the negative is transformed into positive. Because without that negativity, you would never have arrived here. You would never have reached this level. So the negative itself becomes the impetus for the positive. So by reaching the level of Teshuvah, you've transformed. You've reached into your past and transformed that negative experience into a positive. Not that that goes away. But instead of being a negative experience and it drags you down, that negative energy, now it emits positive energy. That negative experience from now on will emit positive energy until you feel your heart is clogged again. You become apathetic again a different. That's a signal it's wearing off. The negativity is returning. Because whatever level of transformation you had doesn't work anymore. You're much higher. You're much more is expected of you. So now you have to propel yourself once again with a newfound level of intensity to once again not only neutralize that negative event and experience, but once again transform it into positive. Because when a person does something wrong... It's not enough just to ignore that. You have to, you have to pay back. You have to pay God back for, for all the neg- negative things that we have done, all the negative energy that we've wasted, all that positive energy that we've wasted now negative experience. So it's time. You have to pay back and you have to restore that energy into the positive. So now that it's wearing off, and the proof that it's wearing off is because once again my heart is clogged again and I feel indifferent again. I lost the excitement and the hunger and the thirst and the Seeking in the spirituality, and now I'm just indifferent and bored and I couldn't care, and uh, you know, that's the biggest signal. It's time to wake up, time to move on. <laughs> I need a new oomph, a new uh, to be continued.